Bugs, 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 bugs. Let's talk about books, baby. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about books, baby. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about books, baby. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about books, baby. Say it, say it in a sexy voice, Lindsay. Hello and welcome. To let's talk about books, baby. <laughs> that's Lindsay. And that's Kayla. And today we are going to be discussing The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And we will also be discussing the autobiography of Al Haj Malik Al Shabazz, aka Malcolm X. Oh, as told to Alex Haley. So obviously it's an autobiography. But people credit Alex Haley as like the ghostwriter, but he had to stay very close to what Malcolm X said. It right. feels so weird to call him Malcolm X, to be totally honest, because that's really? not how he ended his life. Okay. So I'm Interesting. like, really a phenomenal book, and I highly recommend it to literally everyone. White, black, Asian, doesn't matter read it. It is amazing. Also, I do recommend to anyone who wants to read Malcolm X, but look, it took me five ever to finish Malcolm X because you it have is- been reading this book for like, I mean, yeah. have you been reading this book for like three months? Yeah. But <laughs> I've read I remember- other books in between. That's the thing. Okay. But honestly, this is what I'll say. I think that there was a reason, not to get all spiritual on you guys, but I do believe that there was a reason that it took me until now to read it. I mean, especially the time when he was Malcolm Little, when he was a young boy. That part of the book is, you know, because it's his childhood. So he's remembering all these details, very long and very like, it takes up so much of the book. And I found that it just took me a long time to get through. But then, of course, I started wanting to read it more. So I kept reading it. And then the murder of George Floyd happened. And at that point, I was still reading it in pieces. And it was actually really grabbing me at that point because it was when he got to jail. And okay. it's it's a very intense part of the book and actually my favorite part of the book, to be totally honest. And I think that was the moment I was like, I have to finish this now. And it, it was mind blowing how it just put into words things I was feeling. And and I, I didn't know how to express those things. And so I think that there's a reason why he's so well known. There's a reason why he's a hero. What I would recommend, because it did take me so long to get through it, um, <laughs> I did towards the end, I started listening to, they have the audiobook on YouTube, read by Joe Morton. He played in The Politician, Justice League, and Scandal. Really great voice. But he doesn't read the book in its entirety. He reads it he kind of piecemeal because, okay. you know, it's only four hours and 14 minutes. So he actually gets through it pretty quickly. But yeah, so recommend it. If you can't read the book because it is thick and tiny print, definitely <laughs> listen to Joe Morton read it. He is phenomenal. But yeah, let's get started. I really want to start from when Malcolm was Malcolm Little. I, because his life is so vast, I really want to start from when he was a kid. He was a sweet kid. And unfortunately, his mother had some psychological issues after his father was killed. And he had to go live with actually a white family that was basically like his foster family. And he went to go live with them. And he said they were really nice and everything. But the problem was they treated him like he was a pet. 
because he did really well in school, but it was almost like they showed him off like mm-hmm. a pet. Oh, look what we taught him how to do. Look at this trick we taught him how to do. Right. And it didn't hit him right away. And then told one of his teachers that he wanted to be a lawyer. And that teacher told him to be more realistic and maybe to go be like a janitor or something. It was one of those things where it was like, he has dreams and ambitions and you're telling him, don't, don't do that. It's like, yeah. meh. So he ended up going and staying with his sister, Ella, and she was really nice to him, really kind. And I think after he saw what black people were like, where Ella was from, he, he started realizing like, there's this black community that I want to be a part of. And I think he realized my pride and everything has been so suppressed by these white people. And I'm just basically seeking their love. And I think he kind of turned on his head head a little bit and was like, nah, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be following you anymore. And he started kind of, I guess, in a sense, acting up, you know, he wasn't listening to the white people anymore. He kind of rose through the ranks in different ways. Like he went on to become like a street hustler, like he sold weed, he went dancing, he talked about having a conch, which is a hairstyle. But like later he talks about how that that hairstyle was basically him trying to emulate the white man's hairstyle. And he didn't realize it at the time. I think that he just wanted to be himself and wanted to navigate his way through the world. He went to jail. And when he went to jail, like they called him the devil or they called him Satan. But then his family actually came to him and were like, you know, you need to accept Islam. But it was the nation of Islam, which is different than regular Islam. And and I don't mean to like insult anyone in saying that, but it's true. There are very, very extensive differences. And so he started accepting that. And like uh, what the nation of Islam taught was that the white man is the devil and the original man was black. And it took thousands of years for white people to become who they are. And then kind of like we had the audacity to start treating black people the way that we started treating them. And so there was a lot of hatred there. And so he started writing to this man named Elijah Muhammad to basically say like, you know, my brother told me about this religion of yours. Can you please explain it? He felt so embarrassed writing to Elijah Muhammad because the thing is, and here's one of the big differences, Elijah Muhammad claims to be the last prophet sent by God. But Muslims were like, nah, no, like the last prophet was like our prophet. And so we're like, that's not cool. And so... He was so embarrassed to actually be writing these letters to Elijah Muhammad. And he's like, I haven't written or read in so long. So what he started doing was he actually checked out a dictionary from the prison library and wrote down every single word in the dictionary, like the definitions and everything. And it made his vocabulary so extensive. He was able to work on his writing. And then he started just reading. Like he read everything. It gave him so much power. Reading really does give you power. That's why we do this podcast, you know, because it it helps us. It allows us to, you know, hopefully be less ignorant and it allows us to live several lives. Reading so amazing. And so that's what he got to do. Eventually, he got out of prison and he became a minister for Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam. And he became like such a revered person. He was so strong. He was such a good speaker. He knew his stuff. And he was phenomenal. 
And then he also did something called fishing, which is where he basically tried to bring in young black youth into the nation of Islam and he would invite them. And But he was basically married to the nation of Islam because he couldn't bear to put his thought and his mind into anything else. He wanted to focus on the nation of Islam. He didn't even care to get married really until he met Betty X. And he'd spent time around her, but he didn't want her to know that he liked her. And it was so cute because then he was driving to his family and he stops to get gas and he gets on a, a phone and he calls her and he's just like, do you want to get married? And she was like, oh my gosh, well, yes, I would love to. And he's like, all right, you better get here soon because we don't have time. <laughs> so she, she hopped on a plane, flew over, and they got married. Elijah Muhammad always talked about there being like, hypocrites and people who were after him. So he started running and he he just basically left and Malcolm X was kind of left to pick up the pieces. And, and by the way, this is when he begins being Malcolm X. This is the Malcolm X that where he got his name. And so he brought forth so many more temples for the nation of Islam. He opened, I'd say, at least like 10. And he went to Elijah Muhammad and was always like, we're really working hard to do this and to really bring forth everything for you and all this stuff. And he looked up to him. He was one of his most loyal followers. But then he was becoming so popular because of the way he spoke, because he was so eloquent. And he ended up getting death threats. He found out that actually Elijah Muhammad, even though he was praising Malcolm X to his face, behind his back, he was talking badly about him. And he was saying that Malcolm X was going to basically take over. And he was so hurt. He's looked up to this man for years. He talked for so long about how the white man was the devil and how the black man had to find his way in this country and all this stuff. And basically Islam, they were saying Christianity is the religion of white people because, you know, they even show you their portrayal of Jesus is white. I'm white and I don't think Jesus should be white. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, yeah. I don't think anyone then, should really because yeah. it's not. Yeah, like common sense. Yeah. He's not white. Like, no. yeah. he's in the devil. Come on, guys. Like, And he's portrayed as this very pale white person. At least make him a tan white person if you're exactly. going to be making him white. Come on. <laughs> Do you remember 21 Jump Street? Do you remember Korean Jesus? Korean Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's actually funny because in The Hate You Give, they pray to Black Jesus. And they actually they specifically really? say, Black Jesus, like we're praying to you, Black Jesus. And I, th I thought that that was awesome. I'm actually, yeah, I was going to say, if you are a part of the Christian religion in any way, I'm like, yeah, go with a darker Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I truthfully, truthfully, you know. I actually just read The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, which is about if Jesus had a wife. You know, I'm reading it and she's describing Jesus and she's describing the people around him and they are from the Middle East, really. Like they they're are brown. from, they're, they're brown. Like brown. They yeah. are brown people with, you know, black curly hair and like, it just, it baffles me. No, I mean, it doesn't baffle me. It makes a lot of fucking sense how he got so whitewashed. Exactly. It's just, it's just so silly. He knew that if he wanted to bring everyone together properly, he had to go on his pilgrimage to Mecca. So basically, when he went to on Hajj, he thought that he was going to come back and, and be able to tell all black people, how they could come together and be basically, you know, like, like that kind of thing. Like he wanted to tell them how they could come together. And, and this was something that he said, can you imagine what would happen if all African heritages decided to unite, which to me, that's what's happening right now.
all black people, not so not just African heritage, obviously, but like all black people are coming together for this huge and, and amazing thing. You know, there's the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and so I think that he calls it so many times in this book. But anyways, so he thought that that was the understanding he was going to get when he went to Saudi Arabia for his pilgrimage. And this is what happened instead. He wrote this letter to several people, including his wife. And he wrote basically the same version of all the letters. <laughs> I'm just going to skip around really quickly. For the past week, I have been utterly speechless and spellbound by the graciousness I see displayed all around me by people of all colors. There were tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world. They were of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans. But we were all participating in the same ritual, displaying a spirit of unity and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe could never exist between the white and non-white. You may be shocked by these words coming from me, but on this pilgrimage, what I have seen and experienced has forced me to rearrange much of my thought patterns previously held and to toss aside some of my previous conclusions. This was not too difficult for me. Despite my firm convictions, I have always been a man who tries to face facts and to accept the reality of life as new experience and new knowledge unfolds it. I have always kept an open mind, which is necessary to the flexibility that must go hand in hand with every form of intelligent search for truth. During the past 11 days here in the Muslim world, I have eaten from the same plate, drunk from the same glass, and slept on the same rug while praying to the same God with fellow Muslims, whose eyes were the bluest of blue, whose hair was the blondest of blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of white. And in the words and the deeds of the white Muslims, I felt the same sincerity that I felt among the black African Muslims of Nigeria, Sudan, and Ghana. We were all truly the same brothers, because their belief in one God had removed the white from their minds, the white from their behavior, and the white from their attitude. I could see from this that perhaps if white Americans could accept the oneness of God, then perhaps too they could accept in reality the oneness of man and cease to measure and hinder and harm others in terms of their differences in color. With racism plaguing America like an incurable cancer, the so-called Christian white American heart should be more receptive to a proven solution to such a destructive problem. Perhaps it could be in time to save America from imminent disaster, the same destruction brought upon Germany by racism that eventually destroyed the Germans themselves. Preach! It was amazing. So basically, he wrote those letters. He wrote several letters and was like, this is how I feel now. I realize that we have to unite, that yeah. it shouldn't be us versus them. We yeah. need to unite and we need to make the world better. That this white privilege, this racism, really it's racism. Uh, he said yeah. this racism is a cancer. And he says that we need to basically eradicate this cancer. And what, what year was this? Remind me. This was 1964. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm so ashamed to say that. Like, it is yeah. horrendous. Because in truth, that's what happened. Uh, you know, to that point, the fact that you just reminded me of the year, there is a line from the book that I want to read. There was one time where there were these two white police officers who were breaking up a fight between two black men. And one of the white police officers ended up beating up one of the black men. A and the black man was in the Nation of Islam. So... Obviously, Malcolm X heard about this and 
the whole caravan of Muslims, I'll just say of the Muslims, walked over to the police station and they congregated outside the police station and they made the police officers super nervous because they didn't like that. They felt like they were losing control. And so this is what Malcolm X says. They were nervous and scared of the gathering crowd outside. When I saw our brother Hinton, it was all I could do to contain myself. He was only semi-conscious. Blood had bathed his head and face and shoulders. I hope I never again have to withstand seeing another case of sheer police brutality like that. And this, damn, like, it still happens. This was in 58, so 1958-ish, or maybe ni- early 1959. But that was when it happened. Can you believe that? The, the black community is still facing that. And it's horrible. It's so sad. But once Malcolm X came back from Hajj, that was what he said, was that it, there needs to be a, a unity. He said that, you know, basically America is this nation of scapegoat. Like they are always trying to find a scapegoat. And so they were. he was saying that when a white youth kills, then it's a sociological problem. But when a black youth kills, then the power structure wants to find someone to blame. They want yeah. someone to hang for the crime. When someone is white and they shoot up a school, they're like, oh, you know, there's some mental issues. He was a lone wolf. And then when someone's black, it's like, mm-hmm. he ran with the wrong crowd. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's how I feel about like when people are trying to say that all Muslims are terrorists. And I'm like, yeah. really? Like, really? Yeah. Do you want to go there? We, do we want to talk about <laughs> how many mass shootings in America have been done by white men, white Christian white men? men? Let's talk yeah. about it. But when Malcolm X showed up to the airport after his after Hajj, he said, the black man must forget what he was taught, that there was no alternative but to beg for his civil rights. We have an airtight case to bring to the UN that basically the US has denied us of human rights. And it's crazy oh, true. true. Yeah. <laughs> crazy true. I was like, yes. Yes. And he was like, no one's running to no one was running to the UN. But uh, still, like, that's that's an idea. And then he was saying that racism is so deeply rooted in whites that they don't know that they're racist. And I was like, bro, yes, that's what we're saying now. We're like, oh, my God, wait, wait a minute. Like, maybe this thing that I thought was okay this whole time is actually some sort of a racial bias. Like, this is an issue that I need to resolve. And so I thought that that was really interesting. But, you know, basically, after he came back from Hodge, he was like, I want to better the relationships between blacks and whites in America because this racism is a cancer in America. And I, I just very quickly just want to quote this page. He said that, I said that on the American racial level, we had to approach the black man's struggle against the white man's racism as a human problem, that we had to forget hypocritical politics and propaganda. I said that both races as human beings had the responsibility of helping to correct America's human problem. The well-meaning white people, I said, had to combat actively and directly the racism and other white people. And the black people had to build within themselves much greater awareness that along with equal rights, there had to be the bearing of equal responsibilities. And then he had actually been asked by several white people asking, what can a sincere white person do? And at one point, he had actually told a woman who had come all the way from New England down to New York and asked him, what can I do? And he told her nothing. And he felt very regretful of that. But then he said, 
the first thing I tell them is that at least for my own particular Black nationalist organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity is concerned, they can't join us. I have these very deep feelings that white people who want to join Black organizations are really just taking the escapist way to solve their conscience. By visibly hovering near us, they are proving they are with us. But the hard truth is this isn't helping to solve America's racist problems. And I I apologize for some of the vocabulary that's used here, but um, the Negroes aren't the racists. Where the really sincere white people have got to do their proving of themselves is not among the black victims, but out on the battle lines of where America's racism really is. And that's in their own home communities. America's racism is among their own fellow whites. That's where the sincere whites who really mean to accomplish something have got to work. And he basically ends that in saying that we, as white people, we need to combat it within our own community. We need to discuss. We need to fix it in our own homes. But one thing he did say was that in fixing the relationship between black people and white people, you know, he hated white people for the longest time. (laughs) He hated them because he thought that they were basically the devil incarnate and rightfully so because he'd been screwed over by them his whole life and for 400 years. But he did say that Anger can blind human vision. And so he was so angry at the treatment that he received from the white people in America that he was like, they're the devil. But then when he went to Mecca, he met these white people with blue eyes and he realized that, no, it's not a white people issue. It's a human issue. And that's where the racism in America needs to be combated. That's where it needs to be taken out. It's a cancer. And that's it. Like, it's just... It was an amazing book. His revelations in the end were just phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And obviously very, like you said, you took a while to read the book, but you kind of got to where you got at the right time. And that kind of spurred you on to finish the book. And I think that that's poetic. Yes. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, And unfortunately, uh, Malcolm X, when he came back from Hajj, he didn't live very long. And he even said that he wouldn't. Actually, I know I said that that would be the last thing I said, but I will read. Yes, I have cherished my demagogue role. I know that societies have often killed people who have helped change those societies. And if I can die having brought any light, having exposed any meaningful truth that will help to destroy the racist cancer that is malignant in the body of America, then all of my credit is due to Allah or God. Only the mistakes have been mine. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, he did this amazing stuff and he did not live to see this book come out. Wow. He knew. And he said several times in the book, I don't expect to live. I don't expect to die of old age. He said, people who have made change, they don't live. And and I I think that that was an amazing thing, but horribly sad and a horrible loss for the world. Yeah. So. Wow. So I read The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And I was actually recommended this book by our mutual friend, Kendall, a long time ago. And I am embarrassed that it took me this long to actually pick it up and read it. And I'm going to be honest, my bookshelves are not diverse, like at all. I do read a lot of white female authors. And Angie Thomas says, I look at books as being a form of activism because a lot of time they'll show us a part of the world we may not have known about. And I find that incredibly true. Um, And I've obviously found worlds and situations and lifestyles in the books that I do read. But I mean, the characters that I'm reading are 
like me, you know, they're, they're people that I could see myself being. And I am, I put in a bunch of different orders to a bunch of different black owned bookstores, not only for the anti-racist reading list, I ordered a bunch of those too, um, but also fictional books, a term I've been seeing that are about black joy. You know, it's not focused on racism or slavery or not the things that kind of perpetuate the oppression, but about black people living their lives and having fun. And, and I just think that that's awesome. So I ordered a bunch of books. I'm still waiting for them to arrive because even the fictional books are out of stock, which is crazy. You you know, it's, it's amazing. Kind of all that to say is that I do realize that I have not been reading diverse books and I am sorry that it, it took me this long to realize it and to make the change, but The Hate You Give was the one that I had on hand. And so it's the first one I read. And I think that it was very opportune. It really, really kind of helped me understand what was going on with George Floyd and kind of the protests and the riots that happened afterward. So the story is about 16-year-old Star. And she is a Black girl living in what's considered the ghetto called Garden Heights. Her and her older brother actually go to a white private school where they're like one of the only few black people, kind of like the opposite of what your mom's uh, situation was. And it's from Star's perspective, which I thought was very interesting because obviously I've never been a 16-year-old black girl. I've I've never had that experience. And so reading it from its her perspective and she's talking, it's her innermost thoughts, I think was really impactful to me. So her and her best friend Khalil are in the car after a party and Khalil is pulled over by a police officer. The police officer asks him to step out of the car and while the police officer is running his license or whatever, Khalil makes a move to the door to check on Star and make sure that she's okay because the police officer was being a little bit rough a lot of it rough, actually. And the police officer shoots him in front of Star. And so it was obviously hard to read from her perspective, being traumatized by seeing her best friend shot by a police officer. Um, And then as she gets out of the car to kind of help him, see if she can, the police officer keeps his gun on her until other officers arrive, as if he's going to shoot her too. And then there is this part where she's in the blanket that they give people after they've been in a traumatic experience. She's sitting there with the blanket and her parents have got there and she mentions that she sees the police officer who who shot Khalil um, with his head in his hands and he's like crying basically, like he couldn't believe what he had done. And later we learn that the police officer thought that in the door of the car, Khalil had a hairbrush and he thought that the hairbrush was a gun and that is why he shot he thought that khalil was heading towards the hairbrush when really he was just opening the door to check on star and make sure that star was okay it's like that still doesn't justify but it's like what the hell we learn later that star had actually seen one of her other friends shot um, by a gang member in a drive-by shooting so she's kind of experienced traumatic things so basically her uncle is a cop as well and he's black and he kind of comes and is like hey will you talk to the police department about what happened we're going to do an internal investigation i'll make sure that everything's okay with you and basically she she says yes but she wants to remain anonymous because of what happens in the media for you know people who 
speak up basically and she wanted to rename she's only 16 too so she wanted to remain anonymous so she speaks to them and then ultimately and i'm sorry i'm breezing through it and i'll go back to certain things but ultimately in the plot line of the police brutality and and kind of her speaking out she goes before a grand jury and they ultimately decide to find the officer not guilty and he is yeah so that's that's a whole thing so she has two best friends Haley is a white girl. Maya is an Asian girl. And they all go to this fancy private school called Williamson Prep. And basically, Maya and Star kind of follow Haley. Haley's kind of taken over as the leader of the friend group. And I mean, we kind of all have those situations where there's a friend that clearly is kind of a little bit more outgoing and just kind of takes charge. And at some point, Star realizes that Haley has unfollowed her Tumblr account because Star had posted a picture of Emmett Till. Basically kind of starts posting, you know, Black Lives Matter and activism and, you know, just all this stuff on her Tumblr. And Haley kind of slyly unfollows her on Tumblr. And Star doesn't really address it until later. And Haley says, I didn't want to see you posting those things. I didn't want to be involved in that. Basically, I see Haley as being the white girl who says, oh, I'm not a racist, but she does make some racist comments, mainly because she just doesn't get that she shouldn't say things like that. Um, She had made a comment with Maya about how on Thanksgiving, she said, are you guys going to eat a cat? Because Maya is Asian. She stayed friends with her. Toward the end is Maya and Star kind of realized, like, why the fuck are we putting up with her? You know, like, why did she kind of make herself the leader of our friend group? They call Haley out on her bullshit, and Haley still won't accept it. Basically, like, all the Karens I'm arguing with in the comments (laughs) on Instagram right now, but I won't get into that. So, kind of my main takeaway from this. And this was really, like I said, very opportune for me to kind of understand everything that's going on currently is after the grand jury finds the officer not guilty, riots break out all over Garden Heights, which is the area that she grew up in. Riots break out, places are set on fire, you know, looted, all this stuff. And I did have a hard time understanding riots. I was like, well, why use violence? It doesn't make sense. And Star says, and I'm gonna, I'm not quoting anything, but um, she basically says that she is so angry that they didn't find the officer guilty that there was nothing else they could do. That her and everybody else in the community they had to burn shit down. They had to take a bat to the police cars and just the anger in her and the way that it's described, it really opened my eyes because there was a part of me that was like, I get it why they're rioting, but I didn't really get it. I kind of had this sense of like, it's fine. Like, I think that they deserve to to do that. They, they totally deserve to. I didn't obviously understand the intricate mindset of what that meant, you know, and how it affected Star and, and everybody else in the community. There was a picture, and I'm really going to butcher this. I was looking for it on Instagram. But it was a picture of a white woman who I want to say is pregnant. I'm not, not sure. But she's holding a sign that says, if my son went to the store and didn't come home, if my son was holding some Skittles and didn't come home, if my son was selling cigarettes and didn't come home, and she names all these things, if my son was stopped by the police and didn't, like that whole thing, and then it said, I would burn this whole city down too. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And it also kind of to that point, it's about education. 
read the fucking books, watch the documentaries, read those articles, follow the black activists on Instagram, open up your world. You are living in a white bubble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most white people are. Okay. Living in a snow globe. You are living in a snow globe and everybody in your snow globe looks exactly like you and acts exactly like you and do the things that you do. I admit, I think I was following like maybe four or five black people who have a blue check on their Instagram before all of this. And now I have followed probably about like 50 in the last Mm -hmm. week and a half. And I, my Instagram feed is fucking beautiful. I'm talking about art. I'm talking about fashion pages that I started following that I'm like, um, yes, like way better than the white fashion pages I've been following before. And even just like, I I really love one of my favorite type of Instagram pages to follow is like wholesome family. I want to see the mom and dad and the kids or, mm-hmm. or I guess it doesn't have to be as nucle- nuclear yeah. as that. Your mom and a mom and a dad and a dad. But you know what I mean? Like I, I like family. that cute, yeah. a happy family. I want to see happy families. And I followed like five of them. And it just makes me happy to see and to expand my world and to also hear their thoughts on what's going on. You know, if I kept following just the white people who I have been following the whole time I've been on Instagram, I would still be so stuck in a bubble. But by expanding my world, I'm able to learn more. I'm able to gain more knowledge. I'm able to to have these arguments with people in the comments and feel pretty strong about my facts and what I'm telling them because I've read the books, I've looked, I've done the research, I've watched the documentaries. It's important. So anyway, kind of bringing it back to the hate you give, it is a young adult book and it is written like a young adult book. So I gave it five stars for the story and how it impacted me, but I will admit there were some parts that were like hard to get through because as an adult, it's hard to read a kid's words. Like Angie Thomas did a really good job of making it very readable for kids. And I would 100% allow my kids to read this book. And I think that anyone who's under the age of like 18 would really enjoy it. I, as someone who has been reading kind of more deeper, not that this the subject was deep, but like are written for adults, you know, it was a little bit of a switch. So I will admit that and kind of preface that, you know, if you're going to pick up this book, it might be really good to listen to as an adult instead and kind of see how the audio goes. Because reading it, I did have some issues with it was written for kids, which mm-hmm. is fine. It's a, it's a young adult book. And I knew that picking it up. Of but course. I didn't even get into and I won't get into because this is just a whole nother side thing. But Star was dating a white boy and her dad had issues with it. And I actually thought from Love is Blind, uh, Lauren and Cameron. It's so funny because he's not described this way, but I did imagine Star's dad to kind of be like Lauren's dad. But of course, Star's dad is like, he was a previous gang member and he sounds a little bit more like rough and tumble. And Lauren's dad is like, what was he, a pastor or a preacher? He's like, minister? He's like seems like the nicest guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. So, so fucking yeah. sweet. But I, I just imagine the conversation that he had with Chris, Star's boyfriend, I saw Cameron and Lauren's dad having that conversation on Love is Blind and 
it's really good to see how Star interacts with her white boyfriend and how he kind of becomes very understanding how he didn't get it either until she explained it to him. And and he was able to kind of realize by being in the thick of it with her, he was part of the riots and, you know, they were there and everything. And, and I felt like that was very powerful as a white person to have this other, you know, we have Haley, who's the racist who kind of doesn't realize that she's racist. And then you have Chris, who, because he's white, has a few, I don't want to say racist tendencies, but he just doesn't fully grasp it yet. He's also young, um, which is not an excuse, but you know, he doesn't fully grasp it. And just seeing the parallels of like kind of the two different white people that you could be, it was, it was just interesting. One thing I'll say is I really like the fact that she did that because basically what she's saying is they're not all bad. It's like, yeah, you'll get a Haley where she's like, "Mm, you know, the stuff you're posting, mm, it's not like, it's Mm, not. I don't like that on my Tumblr feed, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) I I like that she showed that, yeah, you can have a Haley, but you'll also come in contact with people who just kind of need that deeper understanding Mm -hmm. and then they will be an ally. Yes. Essentially. Um, I, I like that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We highly recommend these books because if you want to understand, we talked about Malcolm X, we talked about The Hate You Give, and truly you can see that things haven't changed that much. They haven't changed enough, not nearly enough. And it's been so long. I mean, Malcolm X died in 1965. And here we are, you know, 60 years later. And where are we really? You're quoting him and his quotes are still so fucking relevant. So applicable. Like how? How? And so you guys, like that's why these books are important to read. Read Malcolm X. Read the autobiography of Malcolm X so you can see what they were going through at the time. And so also you can kind of understand why you'll be like, oh, well, I got attitude from this person or that person. It's like, really? Read Malcolm X and you'll understand why. Honestly, just Think about it for like a second and you'll understand why, Yeah, you know, seriously. seriously. And and just remember, like, these are human rights issues and, and they haven't changed. So once you finish Malcolm X, move on to the hate you give, see how, how similar these things are, see how much things have changed or haven't changed. And truly, I had this thought today. This is random, but I started singing the song from from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Pure imagination. I was I had just gotten done reading some of the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I started imagining this world of like, wow, just if I can imagine the perfect world, it would be like where I can go to the store and I can smile at the person next to me and I don't have to feel guilty and they don't have to feel like a resentment and they don't have to feel hate. And we can just be living this life of coexistence. I can see someone get stopped on the side of the road and I don't have to worry about their life and I don't have to think about actually stopping to record it just to make sure everything goes okay. These are things that we have to think about in this world, but I think that an important thing is, yes, it's okay. It's really good for me to like be able to use my imagination and be like, all right, this is how I want the world to be. But the important part is to not idealize the world that we're already in. The world that we're currently in is lacking extremely. But it's okay to be like, you know what? 
this is how I want the world to be. Now that I can imagine how I want the world to be, I have to imagine the steps that I can take to get me to that world. It's just like when you're trying to find a job, you're like, this is the job I want to have. So what steps do I need to take? It's the same thing, you guys. And I understand that it is, it's going to be difficult because you can't control everyone. You can only control your own actions. That's the place that we are in. All right. Move towards your friends. Make sure that you are talking to them. Make sure that you are talking to other people. Make your stance known and let's move our world toward a world of pure imagination. That's Kayla. And that's Lindsay. And this has been Let's Talk About Books, baby. Until next time. Bye.